Welcome to the Travel Tales Podcast. The winners are the, the people with the most stories. One of the great things about traveling is the people that you meet. I've slept in bus stations, like yeah. I've slept on people's floors. And it's already on fire, and then there's just a gigantic, huge explosion, like out of a Hollywood movie. It's not right or wrong, it's just different. We hired like 10 Chinese prostitutes to come be our audience. We were kidnapped by nuns in Puerto Rico. <laughs> not a good idea to be high when you're packing. You forget a lot of stuff. I got swine flu. By the time you've lived through it, it's just a good story. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Travel Tales Podcast. I'm your host, Mike Siegel. My guest today is Josh Johnson. Before I get to our chat, I do have a little business to take care of. Our website is TravelTalesPodcast.com. Go there. Check it out. You can see links to all our social media, which is, of course, Instagram. We're Travel Tales Podcast on Instagram. We are Travel Tales Pod on Twitter. Travel Tales Podcast on Facebook. But you can go to the website and see the links for all those social media, and you just click on them and join and be our friend and like and do whatever you have to do, because I want more followers. And speaking of popularity, I am still in the running for the Lights Camera Switzerland contest to host a travel show in Switzerland this summer. But I need your vote. And if you think you've already voted, and maybe you have already voted... Uh, if you went and voted and they didn't ask you for your email address, that means you could probably vote again. And don't be worried about giving your email address because what it does, it signs you up for a contest to win a grand tour of Switzerland yourself. So you can sign up. You're supposed to only vote once, but a lot of people have voted already and uh, didn't ask them. They recorded the vote. This, was, this is usually around the first few days uh, this seems to have happened, that it recorded the vote, but uh, people could vote multiple times. And I think uh, some people might have gamed the system that way. You didn't hear that from me. But whatever it is, I need your vote. And this is going on until May 5th. Go to LightsCameraSwitzerland.com. Just click on me, Mike S. Give him your email. Hell, give him multiple emails and vote multiple times. Yeah, that's how we do it. I'm calling it in Chicago style. Vote early and often. I don't care anymore. I'm falling way behind here. So I'm asking for your help. Um... Voting goes till May 5th, so vote, tell all your friends, I'd appreciate it. If you want to write me, write me at TravelTalesPodcast at gmail.com. That's TravelTalesPodcast at gmail.com. My guest today is Josh Johnson, a nice young man I met at a barbecue thrown by my good friend Marianne Bean from Jet Set Extra. He is a traveler, a seeker, a storyteller, producer, a lover of hallucinogens, <laughs> and successful contributor to digital media of all sorts. So it was a pleasure to meet him, and I think you'll like listening to his travel tales. Please enjoy my chat with Josh Johnson. And what do, what do you call yourself now? A producer? A... Digital storyteller. Okay. Which makes, you know, which just leaves people scratching their head. Uh, really, the, the operative word for me is storyteller because I do a lot of video. Uh, historically, I did a lot more blogs. Um, I've published over 500 articles for Matador Network. A lot of that was blog content, photo essays, and things like that, stories, narrative. Um, but now the, you know, I do a lot of video, still do photos and social stuff. So all that for me falls under the ancient venerated umbrella of storyteller. <laughs> right. And so I, I feel like the tools are different, but the game is the same and it's, it's storytelling. So I'm trying to kind of groom people to understand, uh, that, it, um, you know, it's not, I'm not a blogger. I'm not a videographer, I'm a digital storyteller. What was, no, but does the storytelling always have a travel bent or is it other yeah, things? It has mostly in the past because that's been kind of the big, you know, informative experience and kind of where the, the work and the career and the passion has led. But and and travel sto travel for me is like a stargate for storytelling. I f may feel relatively uninspired unless I'm in some sort of adventurous travel. It doesn't have to be world travel, but some sort of mode where I'm exploring, and that's where the stories kind of synchronistically start to occur. Well, where did you grow up? Where did you come from? I grew up in the Pacific Northwest, about an hour west of Seattle, in a small town called Port Orchard. Port Orchard down a dirt Washington. road, Washington. Yeah. 
<laughs> Sounds very apple heavy or something, or any kind of orchard. Well, you know, these, you know, I haven't seen any orchards in Port Orchard. Oh, really? The name is actually kind of confusing. I think historically the first name was Sydney, Washington, and then they changed it to Port Orchard. No idea why. I'm okay. Sure, I'm sure there was an orchard in there somewhere. <laughs> but, you know, pine trees, dirt road. Creek, Sounds beautiful. Beautiful. And so, really, I feel like the spirit of travel, the spirit of adventure really started because my parents moved me out into the Boone Tulies. Uh, and. We had a couple acres, you know, creeks, wildlife, and it was like, get out and explore. wasn't allowed inside unless it was dark, you know. There was yeah. no – the Nintendo didn't come on until, you know, rarely, until <laughs> right. it was dark. So having that kind of uh, experience, that kind of, you know, childhood, I think really prepped me for wanting to explore the world even further. Where did the, uh, the video aspect of it come in? Did you study that in school? No, not at all. What I what I attempted to graduate college studying twice was creative writing. <laughs> oh, I know this story. Okay, how many different uh, different schools, or did you, you just change your major you know, a bunch I, of times? I got my AA, and then I went to the University of Washington and withdrew twice. The first time I withdrew, it just wasn't the right time. My my father had just passed away, and two weeks after my father passed away, I enrolled, and that was the first time I moved away from home, and right. so it was a very kind of a gnarly situation. I ended up playing more uh, Ultimate Frisbee than going to classes. At that sure. time, I was a theater major coming off of a scholarship. and um, a, theater, a theater scholarship? Uh, theater scholarship at the school I attended AA. And then I was entering the program, uh, you know, kind of getting ready to enter that world and kind of get both feet in the theater world of UW. UW has a great theater program. But my heart was just not in school. I've never been a great student, um, <laughs> a creative person, but not necessarily an academic person. And so long story short, I withdrew from school, just couldn't, couldn't do it. My heart wasn't there. Um, cleaned carpets, steam cleaned carpets for about a year, saving money, and um, went to Italy. Had 3000 bucks in my pocket, didn't know shit from Shinola, didn't know anything. Uh, <laughs> never studied. You know, People say, why you go to Italy? It was like literally... No reason. I saw the Gladiator, thought it was awesome. You know, it's like <laughs> that was the only city, that was the only country, I should say, that I could actually kind of name a couple of cities and, and archaeological sites. So I figured that's as good. If, if you've never been anywhere, if you grew up on a dirt road, at least right. as good a place to start as anywhere. Have you been out of the country before that? No, never. And my family hadn't traveled much, you know. No, we're not counting Canada. No. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Canada. Lots <laughs> of school Especially field, where you grew up. Yeah, lots of school field trips to Canada. Yeah. No, you know, the the... It feels like the same place. If you go from Seattle to Vancouver, Portland, yeah. Seattle, Vancouver, they're almost like the same city in a lot of ways. It's a very similar culture, very Pacific Northwest. <laughs> um, no, I had 3000 saved up some money cleaning carpets, and I just kind of – something in my soul said I needed to just get on the other side of the earth, and things will happen. And I had no idea what those things would be, and um, – Spent three months, three thousand dollars, backpacking around, sleeping on the streets, bumming basically, uh, and just put the bug in me. And that's when I started. There was no kind of blogs. There was no uh, MySpace or anything like that at this point. This was, gosh, I want to say two thousand three, two thousand two, something like that. Uh, no, no blogs that kind of how we recognize them now today. I didn't know of them. There were probably a lot right. of opportunities. I just couldn't avail myself of them. I didn't know. So I was just doing kind of email chains to my family and friends, doing narrative kind of first-person adventures of what I was doing. The video aspect is really interesting. I got married. Um, been married. I'm, now I'm trying to figure out what year that was. Been married 10 years. It's 2015. So it was 2004. Um, mm -hmm. And a site had just launched called YouTube. Mm -hmm. And my wife said, we're going to Costa Rica. We, we got married. Spent the first month drinking uh, the 33 bottles of wine we were given at our wedding. 33? Roundabout. Wow. Lost count. But it was over 30, sure. under 40. <laughs> uh, 33 in a month? 33 that, in a month, yeah. A little over a, one a day. Bottle a day. Yeah. That's a great way to kind of start out a marriage. Mm -hmm. And then we went to, um, long story short, went to Costa Rica uh, for three months. And we had these clunky, you know, DV tape video cameras. My wife was like, there's video she was telling me you know we should be filming our stuff you know video you can upload it to the internet now and at that point the the, the quality was so terrible it was so hard to get the export setting, settings right everything looked bad and so i really it was hard for me to wrap my head around how anybody would ever want to see video of us traveling or anybody traveling because it was hard to kind of the tech wasn't there yet and the, the quality wasn't there but the, at this point the site was about six months old and she said no i really think we should do this so we 
started filming our our travels kind of just very very goofy you know you know how just kind of the perpetual selfie and explaining to everybody what you're doing but it really it did put the idea in my mind that this was that this was something so that when we got around to doing world travels uh, a couple years later went to southeast asia for about nine months and that was uh taught english in vietnam and and things like that and that that was when we really started to shoot a lot of video and because at that point the quality and the everything was starting to kind of catch up with the inspiration um so did you create you created your own youtube channel yeah and uh, how long did it take to get traction in, in that? You know, field? it wasn't. I, it's never really been something. My my personal YouTube channel hasn't ever really been something that's been a big draw that's gotten me gigs or traction. It's something that's been kind of a slow burn. What helped me, what really was the big accelerant for my travel media career, was um, becoming one of the first contributors for Matador Network when I was in Southeast Asia, living in um in Saigon. I their site launched in 2006, and I think I was published about six months after their launch. I saw like a Craigslist ad, you know, they're paying some paying a couple pennies for travel stories, and I thought, well, I got a couple of those. I'm just I've just been I was literally, literally spending four hours a day in MySpacing and internet cafes <laughs> at that point. Well, what um, now talk about Matador Network and what that is, and, and for people who don't know it, sure, MatadorNetwork.com is a amazing online travel magazine. They do. I mean, they've uh, they've published from thousands of writers and photographers and videographers. It's been around for for a while now. Um, they're crushing it on traffic. Um, I've wore many hats from them. I was the dean of Matador U, their online travel writing, photography, and video school for a couple years. I I was a editor for the Traveler's Notebook and launched the Matador TV uh, site. They have thirteen or fourteen different kind of branches, different branch sites. Now I'm a contributing editor, which kind of means I don't really have any responsibilities other than producing the content I'd like to produce when I'd like to produce it. And also I work with them and their content clients to create video custom content, you know, just got done working with travel Nevada to do this great road trip series, going through these ghost towns, driving out to area 51, going out to Pioche where the, which was the deadliest town in the wild West where 72 people were killed in gun battles mm-hmm. before anybody died of natural causes. So all, this kind of cool stuff like that, I'll come and I'll do kind of pinch hitter, uh, custom content for Matador now, but it's a, I, in my, my opinion, it's one of the best travel, uh, media websites for entertainment, for inspiration, for, you know, you name it. Now do they, I mean, you don't have to get specific, sure. but do, do they pay people or does oh, it yeah. mostly... no, Absolutely. Absolutely. They pay all their contributors. Um, and that's, you know, they've, cause a lot don't yet. A lot of people don't. Uh, yeah. A lot don't, a lot can't. And it's, it's been, I've been publishing with them, doing content with them for, for a number of years, so it's really been nice to see the progression to be able to come into th- their own and be able to compensate people more and more accordingly and get the quality content. And really, just be able to th- a lot a lot of people that we now recognize as kind of name brand as in their own right were some were contributing content to Matador before they had really kind of established themselves. Um, so it's a great way to not only I mean I see it as as a as a vast resource for me to kind of be able to tell the stories I want to tell to a massive audience. They have you know millions of uniques a month, um, you know over ten million last time I checked, and so it's a great avenue for me, but also for aspiring and foot in the door people, and very and also not not just aspiring, very very established, uh, wonderful photographers, videographers, and storytellers. So you dropped a hint on this whole thing. You were teaching English, yeah, in Vietnam. Yeah. Now, I've been to Vietnam twice, and I love it. Yeah. So tell me about that and uh, how you got involved with that, and it why was, Vietnam, of all places? It, it was a total... had no idea that was going to happen. We, first of all, when this, when this whole trip kind of started to come into, uh, you know, planning, I my, my, had my wife committed to two weeks in the Yucatan. And I said, well, what about a month? It's a patient woman, by the way. Yeah, yeah. She said, what about a month in (laughs) Southeast Asia? Because we had a mutual friend come back and had just kind of done Thailand, Cambodia, Vietnam. said, you have to do this. Don't go to Cancun. You have to do this. And so I kind of convinced her more and more. And and she said, okay, you know, do – I think she agreed to a month or something like that. So I booked our ticket for – Two and a half months. Told her after, you know, we didn't have anything going on. Right. You know, we might as well do this. And once we got there, you know, um, Thailand was wonderful. Um, Cambodia was heartbreaking and beautiful and very, uh, very surreal. 
And getting to Vietnam was this other big shift. Um, the story getting into Vietnam was uh, was very kind of fraught with with frustrations and peril and going broke and not knowing what's <laughs> going to happen and and being rescued by these unlikely saviors. But once we got to Saigon, uh, we were running out of dough. It always costs a little more than you think it's going right. to. You know, you don't take into account that every d- bottle of water is going to be a dollar and that's going to, you know, so when you're on a really tight budget, we just saw our money was going quicker than we had anticipated and we still had, uh, you know, some trip left. And I believe it was the second night in Saigon, we just happened to find ourselves at a bar that was almost exclusively patronized by expats teaching English who kind of just assumed that we were one of them. One yeah. of them. So, hey, where are you teaching? How are you doing? We're like, hey, we just got here. Like, we were so fresh. We were just like, I don't even know where we are. <laughs> and uh, the kind of the gist was, oh, my God. Well, if you want to teach, like, I, I have way too much work. Are you are you interested in staying? And it was just like the idea. It was just like it just came crushing, crashing down on my head. It had never even occurred to me that we could just stay put and, and, and teach and do something. We had no tessel, no, you know, I'm a... I'm pretty fluent in English, but that was all I had really going right. for me. So they said, basically, with the, with the support of these people that you know, eventually became great friends and moved in with uh, uh, several, you know, half a dozen of them, I said, here's what you need to do. You need to go to Benton Market, get a suit tailored. Make up a CV. It doesn't even really matter what it says because you, you could walk up in your suit and say, I'm an English teacher, and you are. And that was the kind of, it was a very wild west kind of like, okay, let's just give it a shot. If it works, it works. If it doesn't, it doesn't. And we ended up staying and teaching for about five or six months. One of the best experiences of my life. I was teaching at five different schools, students ranging from six to 60. And it was just a trip, rented the motorbike, did the whole thing. (laughs) It was, it was. This is all in Saigon? Mm Mm-hmm. And did you, um. And um, is there contracts you have to sign, like a, you know, a three-month contract? No, for- nothing like that. Um, you just come and go as you please. You yeah, say, I'm gonna. Yeah. So wow. it, how how and this was about six years ago. So things may things may have changed. The way it was then is that I paid 120 dollars for a Class C business visa. That meant I could stay for six months and then I had to renew it. I didn't have to do a border run because I was doing business. Yeah. Never asked what kind of business you were doing. That didn't really matter. Uh, you pay your 120 dollars, you get your Class C, and you're good to go. And there was, it, it, in my experience, there was kind of two species of English teachers. There was the people that had, were very organized, that had their tessel, they paid the $1,200, took the class, got a year contract, were flown out, and they were generally paid $5 more an hour than me, two, two to $5 more an hour, depending on the school. But they were very locked in. And if you didn't vibe with the school or the headmaster, because there's some, you know, it's not always a great situation. And right. if you go sight unseen, it's very, uh, you're, you're taking a, a little bit of a gamble. And for some people it worked out wonderfully. And for some people it was not ideal. So you were like more of a, uh, like kind of a substitute teacher fly by the seat of my pants. <laughs> so we showed up, uh, and, um, well, eventually we had our own classes that were, you know, very quickly. The first school that hired me was run by the Turkish government. All of their other teachers were non-native English speaking teachers, so I was like the the unicorn at the school that was actually a native English speaker, and they hired my wife as well. So we ended up teaching at lots of different – lots of people have language schools for various interests and various reasons. So I ended up teaching a lot of different – taught an American-style high school where basically um, – you know, so much of the time I was in charge of the curriculum. So we would do things – and, and the, you know, the misconception is that – Nobody speaks any English, so you have to start with ABC123. Not at all. It was all intermediate. So it was things like teaching them idioms, how to give directions over the phone, expressing yourself. You know, we would listen to different genres of music and then put words to them. Had them watch an episode of Seinfeld, completely bewildered. Uh. You know, just trying to, just, there was no, nobody ever checked in on me. It was a very interesting experience because I thought I wasn't a very good student. And so it was very interesting to have the shoe on the other foot and have a 30, 30 Vietnamese students looking at me blankly and very hard to elicit a response sometimes because of the shy and shyness factor uh, that I so often encountered. But it taught me a lot about kind of being light on my feet, working with people, and just I was in charge of the curriculum every day at all these schools. You know, I worked in a workbook <laughs> sometimes, but it was very, very interesting. Yeah. It gave me a lot of stories, a lot of uh, uh, fodder for blogs. You said it was a uh, crazy story coming in from Cambodia into yeah. Ha- what happened? Yeah. So my bank, 
I checked with them. I told them where I was going before I went. Uh, wait, I know where this is going. They cut I, off your ATM and your cut credit off card. My ATM. Yeah. So we crossed. We did, a, and don't don't. I can't remember what the town was, but it was in the Mekong Delta. We did a Mekong River crossing. Really awesome. And we get there, and as soon as we get to Vietnam, the debit cards stop working, mm. and um, we didn't know because we checked with the bank, and there was only two countries in the world that these cards wouldn't work. Vietnam was one of them, and Russia was the other. Mm. I don't know why they chose those countries. It seems kind of our, and it's like if you're going to choose those countries, why are there not other countries? On yeah, those? like I you think China would be the other one, but no idea. Very arbitrary. It was a small town credit union. I think they just kind of Ooh. put their finger on the map so that we probably don't trust them. So I have no idea. Uh, they, to, they made those rules in the sixties. <laughs> I, I imagine they <laughs> Russia, right? Vietnam, yeah, no good. If, so we get there, and um, we hadn't. I didn't know this was going to happen, so I didn't withdraw money in Cambodia. I didn't stuff my pockets. I really would have done a lot of things different. No traveler checks or anything like that. So we get to Vietnam, and we probably have all of twenty dollars on us, hmm. and we have to buy food and find a hostel and things like that. So. And the, the ATM, the town we were in, there's two ATMs, and neither of them worked. And and so they said kind of, well, your best bet is to get on a bus and go to Saigon. That's where all the good ATMs are. So I'm like, okay. I totally trust, you know, I trust that that was, that was the case. Like, these ATMs weren't just going to work for me. That's right. So long story short, we take the bus to Saigon. That takes half the money we have. We get there, show up at the bus station, midnight. It's pouring down rain. We're entering monsoon season, you know, just like really scary water up to your ankles wearing flip-flops and a bunch of uh, cab drivers that were looking at us like, you know, they kind of, the plight was just on our face. And at that point, I think we were had about $15 left and the cab from the bus station, it was way outside of the district one where we needed to be. The cab ride ended up being about $11. Our bags were in the back, so we pull up Famu Lao, District 1, where all the backpackers are. It's, it's about 1 in the morning at this point, prime time to be partying in Saigon, so there's lots of people out. And we pull up across the street from this bar called Guns N' Roses Bar. I'm sure you know what they were blasting. And I want to say I know this place. <laughs> yeah, right on Famu Lao, Guns N' Roses, very dark inside seating. Okay. Well, it sounds really familiar. I was in Saigon because that one area is like a—it almost looks like an alley, right, mm-hmm. where all these bars are. Yeah, hmm, yeah, maybe. Boy, it sounds really familiar. So pull up, no money, and I'm thinking, you know, all of our backpacks and everything is in the back of the trunk, and we owe this guy. We just legitimately owe this guy money. We have to pay him, but I—I can't give him the rest of our money. And it, I should say, back up a little bit. He's at this point, he's taken us to a dozen ATMs that haven't worked. Oh. And it's just not – it's not computing with us what's happening. We have no precedent for the situation. So my wife is running to go check another ATM and I'm like literally head on my hands and don't know what to do. I can't give this guy the rest of our money because then we can't buy food and you know, then we're right. like totally screwed. And but you have it, no like credit cards or anything like this? No. You don't have a credit card? No. Oh, I just got that's my, ballsy. I got my first credit card um, – Less than a year ago. You're kidding me. Yeah. No. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah, that's not something I've... Uh, well, I mean, I had one for a few months when I was 18, and that just... It taught me... It, it bit me in the ass. Ah. Or I bit myself in the ass. It's hard to know what happened, but it was not a fun experience. So I just kind of made... I've made do, but now I, I understand that I really need to uh, <laughs> kind of enter the modern world and build that Yeah. Out. Yeah, no so got a couple of credit cards now, but didn't at the time. It was very much... No. Didn't have two sticks to rub together. So anyway, my head's in my hands. We're across the street from Guns N' Roses Bar, and these two guys stand up. One is kind of tall, and the other is just toweringly gargantuan, just big, tall, lanky guys. They both have mohawks, orange mohawks. One is a diagonal orange mohawk. Just, I think one of them had a black eye. They just look like trouble, and they're walking towards me. I'm thinking, these are white guys. White guys, yeah. I'm thinking, <clears throat> can I guess? Go ahead. Dutch. From the UK. Oh, okay. Damn, I was close. <laughs> you were close. And I'm thinking, oh my God. They just had, they're looking at me and they're walking and they right. look like they've been drinking for a long time and maybe doing other things. I'm just like, oh, great. Okay. Hey, here we are making friends. And the, they literally said, you look like you need help. And I said, yeah, that's an, un- yeah, explain the situation. Boom, money out of their wallet, pays the cab driver, tips the cab driver. We get our bags. And they say, okay, we know we're going to check you into our, uh, we know a guest house the people that run it. We're going to check you in. Wake up the owners of the guest house, pay for our first night. And they say, okay, once you get settled in, come downstairs and uh, we'll buy you a couple of beers and we'll, 
you know, greet you properly. Well, they had been smoking crack all day, all night. <laughs> oh my God. And, uh, we were saved by two lanky drunk crackheads that had been, and I know that they were smoking crack because they invited us over to their, our, their apartment the following evening. I, I was very naive at this point. I thought, Ooh, glassy eyes. They look drunk. I'd never seen anything like what was going on. And I was just like, okay, just keep it cool. Keep it cool. You know, be polite, have a conversation, be, you know, stick around for 15 minutes and excuse right, yourself. Right. Um, but it was like the biggest, it was a huge lesson, still a huge lesson for me. And I draw upon the story because I was taking it at them at face value and they were our saviors. Literally, you don't know who you're saving. They look like Gollum, you know, it, you don't know who's going to come out of the woodwork and be that savior yeah. and they're not going to look like the way you think they're going to look or behave or, or that, you know, I had to really take my morality and all my expectations and what I thought a drug addict was going to do to me or act towards me or something like that. It's very, very interesting lesson. You never know when a crackhead's going to save your life. Exactly. <laughs> you don't, you really don't. And you know, or, or take it. But so had my mom wire us, you know, we figured it out. Right. Had my mom wire us money, and that was also an impetus to start earning cash into the table teaching English. Did you finally call the bank and have them straighten it out? I mean, yeah, we, we, they, they, they said I finally had to call the bank and, and you know talk to them, but there was no way that they my card would work in Vietnam. So oh. we got I think five hundred dollars wired to us, and then got jobs teaching English and got paid in big giant stacks of dong into the table. Yeah, I, I kept my. Uh, uh, ATM receipt from Vietnam yeah. and that because it's like two million dollars. Yeah, it's like <laughs> millions. And I'm going, I'm loaded. And it's, I just like to see all those numbers. And, uh, I, I, and I got paid in, in envelopes full of cash. And so, interestingly, I was able to save up around twenty five hundred dollars in a couple of. And you know, you wow. leave, you leave, you live well when you, you know, because at the time, I think that what I was told was the average Vietnamese five person family was able to pull in about a hundred dollars a month. And so I was making about 10, 12, $15 an hour, um, which by our standards would probably be making like a hundred dollars an hour or something. Yeah, like no, that. it's big. So we were able to have, you know, eat out and, and rent motorbikes and things like that and save money. So the interesting is once I spend my six months teaching, I have about $2,500 in dong, which is a lot of dong. Billions of billions of yeah, and I had to travel through northern. Uh, I traveled through northern Vietnam, and then crossed the border in the northernmost border crosser crossing in Laos, and with with twenty five hundred dollars cash on me because I didn't know what to do with it. Uh. And so I found ingenious ways to hide this kind of three four hundred dollar increments at a time. So if you would really have to just pick me clean. To, to find it all. I mean, <laughs> some was in my tripod. Some I'd hollowed out the back of my portable Steinbeck. I mean, I was just going totally cloak and wow. dagger to hide, hide this money. But <laughs> You had mentioned something about uh, when I was at, you asked me about, oh, do I need stories to come on the show? Mm. And you said there was some story about you with uh, mushrooms right. somewhere. Where was this? This was in uh, Vang Vien, Laos. Okay. Which... I've only been to uh, Luang Prabang. Which was one of my favorite spots Isn't that amazing? in the world. Yeah, love that place. Uh, Long Prabang. I, okay, I got a better story about Long Prabang. Oh, okay. We, go can, ahead. Go, we can get to the magic mushroom. Oh, no, sure. Multiple mushroom stories. Like uh, the Long Prabang. Can you imagine uh, the ferry crossing with, across the Mekong right there? With the skiff takes people across to the other side. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I swam across the Mekong right there. I was probably not recommended. No, ab- absolutely not. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I think I almost died. Uh, at this point, my wife actually went home in May. Uh, her sister was having a baby. Mm-hmm. And so I finished up about a month and a half teaching English and then traveled to Northern Vietnam because I was just wasn't ready to go. I felt like I hadn't seen and I, you know, I hadn't seen what I wanted to see. I wanted to get up to Laos and I wanted to, you know, we had settled and had been teaching English for five or six months. So I didn't feel like a traveler anymore because I hadn't been moving. So I was like, I really want to get back on the road and do traveling across the border up into Laos, you know, had my adventures in Vang Vien with magic mushrooms, get down to Luang Prabang and I travel with swim fins on me regardless because I love to snorkel. like my favorite thing. So I travel with a snorkel mask and swim fins. And so after a couple of days in Luang Prabang, just the idea entered my head that I'm going to put on my fins and swim across the Mekong River. Tenth largest river by length and volume in the world. Mm-hmm. And uh, catfish, 13 feet catfish 
13 foot eels. I mean, there's, you know, the, you know how they have the dragons, the Naga is a big part of the symbology and the carvings in Southeast Asia. Well, they have the legends and uh, legends of Longbang about Naga in the river. And they have something called Naga balls, which are these, um, glowing phosphorescent balls at certain times of year. What happens is like methane gas on the bottom of the river ignites lit and actually ignites underwater comes up Path, you know, through the surface of the water and rises into the air, sometimes 20, 30 feet in the air. And obviously, this is this is this looks very, very magical and mystical and incredible. So there's all these legends of dragons and fireballs. Yeah. I never heard of this. Yeah. So I just get the idea in my head that I'm going to swim across this thing. And I, I go down this there. Is this a sober thought? Was this is, a... This, this was a mildly so okay thought. right you know it was more of like <laughs> i hadn't been i've been away from my wife for several months i'd been away you know i'd been traveling for for the better part of a year i was just kind of feeling just kind of feeling weird just kind of feeling like up for whatever let's just do something weird and i start to swim across this thing and it looks like now the the, the mekong you know has its is it called headwaters where it starts is in the the tibetan plateau it's in the mountains yeah it's in the way 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 far away and so at this point it doesn't look like it's moving very quickly but the power that's there especially you know it's moving much swifter in the middle than it is on right. the side so i put on it's this really gnarly chocolate milk brown you can't see yeah i was gonna you, say if you're gonna try to snorkel there's not a lot no. of visibility there. yeah and i didn't bring my mask just and i'm wearing a backpack that has in the water yeah why would okay uh, bad decisions does it have bricks in it what are you i mean what are you doing oh man it had a backpack with what passport money the, my room key <laughs> wait a minute i know are i you, don't are you uh, trying to flee a prison or something oh my what, gosh. what are you thinking this is so if you're looking at that um the length across <laughs> what would you say maybe 300 yards I, I still <clears throat> at one point i still have a picture i want to say it's a lot a lot further than that in fact i could probably get on google maps or something and really reconfirm but it felt very very far very <laughs> yeah. far and um but i was very confident I'm, str- I'm a really strong swimmer and i got fins with fins i feel like i can swim across anywhere sure um and a backpack which is always great backpack. in the water which you know the water- glide through the water you those. know that backpack had waterproof lining so what it did was fill up and become a albatross around my neck that was trying to pull me to the bottom of the Mekong right. River. Couldn't let it go. I had my passport and room key. But it's going on. So did I still- you not have a room that you could have <laughs> left your craft? No, in it and- didn't. I my accommodations, Mike, are always the most shady budget. If if a room was a buck. I would go look for the seventy-five cent room. The room fifty right. cents. I'd go look for the forty-five. So you're going across this thing, and so you're you weren't going to come back. You were you were going to go across and stay on the other side. Take the skiff back. Okay. I, I actually, to be honest with you, I'm I didn't have a plan about okay. getting back. The plan was. I'm just saying you could have had the, you could have had your seventy-five cent room and yeah. left your crap in it, yeah. and then swum. I don't know. Okay. I don't know. I don't know. These are good mushrooms. Yeah. This was yeah. This was this was post mushrooms. Um, <laughs> okay, so you you jump in, jump in. I start swimming, and I start to feel relatively confident. First of all, the only person that sees me into the water is this kind of this this uh, skiff boy that's helping people ferry people across. There's this skiff, and I should have taken a clue that this outboard motor they had to make this giant arc through the water because even the outboard motor could not go straight across. They had to do this big arc because the current because the current. And so I catch eyes with this kid who's kind of apprentice, son, whatever. He was helping the guy that ran the boat. He kind of he's like, oh. he sees me walking on the water. He's like, we kind of have eyes. And I was like, Shh, here we go. I start swimming. And immediately I start to notice that I'm not moving nearly as fast as I thought I would. And I want to keep moving. I want to keep going. I want to keep going. And I, I, I panic a little bit, but I decide, I decide to just keep moving forward. And what really started to – it really started to get scary when I started to hit kind of the middle of the river, which in all capital letters just kind of flashed in my mind was like point of no return, where the current was actually quite swift and there was some chop and there was debris and things were brushing – slimy things had been brushing up against me. I'm losing my resolve. I'm kicking as hard as I can and I have this backpack filled with water that wants to take me to the bottom. And like every you know mother's worst nightmare and just – awful decision making from right. front to back and um when i'm about at the middle of the mekong i see that I've, i'm already long past where i thought i'd be across the river and where the ferry landing was and that is just that's, that's gone 
So I just keep kicking it, and really, the, the I'm, and I'm on my back looking up at the sky and just going, just kick, 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 just going for all I want. My legs start to be depleted, you know, adrenaline dump like, like mega, and I'm just going for all I'm worth. Eventually, I get to the other side shaking i can barely pull myself it's not it's not a beast it's just like bramble that just wants to scratch you and hurt you mm-hmm. and i'm just shaking pale i pull myself out and pick my way i want to say I, I was about quarter mile downstream from where i thought i would be downstream down mekong yeah and now you got to walk back to the where the skiff landing is mm-hmm. and there's a dozens of people there and lots of people playing uh, cards and waiting for the and as i approach a crowd has gathered and as I get nearer, a cheer goes up. <laughs> and I get there, and I, and I start to realize what's happening is that they had been watching me and thinking that I had died or something like this. And it's like this crazy, what happened? Did he fall? No, he was swimming. Um, I get there, and immediately, shots of rice wine are going down the gullet as fast as they can put them in my hands. And cheer goes up. And it was like, what, there was one kid that that could speak some English there. And we were, he was like the translating, like, why did you do it? It was, I feel like it was being reported. What, what, what's going on? What's did you do it? And, uh, then I'm, I'm alive. I'm on, then this is this type of bad decision-making that leads to like the best experiences that I've ever had. It's, it's, there's usually the equation starts with, uh, take a dumb decision, add some danger. And I get this great, experience Jeez, how long did it take to get across i have no idea but <laughs> it was really like the fear kicked in you know right the, i have no idea um so i'm doing shots of rice wine and there's only one person in the group and he's like there was a bunch of guys playing cards um and there was only one guy in the group and he was giving me the stink eye he didn't like me at all and uh, i kind of kind of just gathered from the vibe that he was kind of like the boss you know kind of like the badass he thinks you know it's just like he doesn't seem like a nice guy and uh, because you know when people had stopped their card game he was to come talk to me or to come greet me or whatever he was shouting at them to come back and play i could just kind of get right, the vibe. Right. so as i'm ready to leave they said the kids said, so we're you gonna swim back i said heck no i'm gonna get in this gift and they said okay well the ride's free and the guy that had to give me the stink eye you know slammed his hand on the table he said basically no he pays no, he pays. He, made, he was calling. And there was this moment where the crowd looks at me, looks at him, and I tell, and I look at the kid that's translating, and I said, you tell that guy that I just swam across the mountain. <laughs> and, and then they're like, ah, and he sits down, and I get in the skift. And, I, and the next day, I rented a mountain bike, paid my way on the skift back to the other side, and actually mountain biked all through the adjoining villages, saw the same kid that had translated it the day before, and it was just this very surreal, uh, not recommended yeah. situation. You talked me out of it. <laughs> yeah, don't. I know you're about to <laughs> get on get on that skift and go. I'm going to get this mushroom story out of you eventually. Right. Okay, let's do that. <laughs> um, so I'm not a complete degenerate, but I do like psychedelics. Okay, um, and uh, that's something that's always been something that. Uh, it, only mushrooms. I, I don't like drugs that I can't brush the dirt off of, okay. if you know what I mean. Yeah. I don't like so any... This is, this is something that I don't really know, but I mean, I did mushrooms once like, sure. in college, and I think was, it was, was like... Was it terrifying or ecstatic? No, to me, it just felt like I was, you know, like stoned, yeah. like on weed or something, but yeah. <clears throat> it lasted like nine hours. Yeah. Okay. That's yeah. the only... So maybe I didn't do enough or didn't do the kind of... Well, it wasn't un- fun. Mm-hmm. I mean, I had fun. Probably should have done a little more. <clears throat> yeah, I think it, I just dipped my toe in the water. There. But yeah, I mean, I just want to preface, but I've never, I, I'm not into anything synthetic. I don't, I don't, right. but I do really value um, organic, you know, cannabis, mushrooms, the sacred plant teachers. I'm going to do a, a trip to Peru to do some ayahuasca sessions with a shaman. Oh, that sounds awful. That sounds, <laughs> it does. Uh, but, but, you know, if you're looking for, personal, there's vomit involved there. Yeah, I know. Oh, lots of it. Uh. They call it La Perga. You purge. Awful. Well, if you're looking for a stargate to self knowledge and personal development, you can't you can't do better. So I'm told by people I trust. Is uh, so ayahuasca. This is something that uh, people go. I've heard that like addicts will go down there to get absolutely, absolutely. And this is something. This is not. This is something that's that's um, you know, fully across the board legal in Peru. It's a it's a sacred rite. It's a these are been done ritualistically. For thousands of years and it is curing alcoholism is curing hardcore drug addicts 
because it is, they call it the vine of the souls. It's a window and it speaks directly to you. And it's often, so I'm told, a very uncomfortable, sometimes ecstatic experience, but also a very uncomfortable experience. But you come out the other side changed, better, hopefully. Yeah, okay. Self-knowledge. So mushrooms. So I'm in, I'm in Vang Vien. And if, if, that ring, if that name rings a bell for anybody, they know that it's the land of backpacker debauchery. I thought that was Luang Prabang. Luang Prabang looks like a Zen garden next to. So Vang Vien, we are in. This is Laos. This is in Laos. It's it's uh it's the they're very well known for the rip the inner tubing river ride with the giant rope swings into oh, the yeah, river. Yeah, people yeah. die every year doing these rope swings. Uh, when I was there, if the river's down, people really can get hurt. When I was there, the river was up, and honestly, it was an amazingly fun experience to do these. I mean, we're talking a rope swing. You have to climb 90 feet in the air on this tree and it's literally the most spider-man experience you can get without being cast on a broadway production that's going to kill you you let go of the rope swing and you still are it's the rope the, the swing is so large that when you let go of the swing you fly an additional 30 feet forward land in the river <laughs> and and it's this, this, people come to vang vien to kind of party and when you're up there you know in that neck of the woods and you go into a restaurant, a regular cafe, these aren't CD drug dens or anything like that. You get two menus, a food menu and a, and a menu for opium, mushrooms and mm. weed and things like that. And a lot of times they just put it on your pizza, put weed on your pizza. The happy pizza costs 50 cents more or something like that. <laughs> and it's very, but it's not legal and there's lots of ways you can. And, and if anybody's listening, I would really, the thing to do is if you are interested in that type of experience is really get there and talk to people there and really understand the rules of the game because you can be extorted uh, very quickly and things can go bad very quickly. If you, let's say you buy something and walk out of the cafe, well, the person that sold it to you maybe just contacted his cousins, told them your whereabouts and five people come out of the bushes, hand you a note in English that says, we're the police, they're not. And they walk you to the ATM and get as much as you can get. And so this happens frequently. So if you don't kind of, if you're not using your spotty senses, you can get in trouble. Um, and it's not, it's honestly not worth it. Obviously I'm not great. I'm not the best role model or decision maker. (laughs) You know, don't, I'm not writing any travel guides at any point. So this is just, this is not an endorsement. It's just what I did. Um, I get there. And at this point I have been traveling and I'm, I'm again away from my wife and I miss her. And, and I keep throwing that out there as an excuse for doing stupid things. But you know, when, <laughs> yeah. when you're away from your people and your place and, <clears throat> and you know, I've been traveling around and, and Laos is a different world altogether. And, um, and I, you know, had had, um, uh, several experiences with, with psychedelic mushrooms in the past that were very, very positive experiences. Um, uh, and so I saw it on the menu and I said, you know what? Tonight's the night and we're going to go big. And so <laughs> he says, I said, yeah, I'd like the, the mushroom pizza. And I said, whatever you do for whatever you usually put on there, just go ahead and double it for me. Oh, he says, okay. And he didn't, they didn't even charge me extra. And this is, this is why I know it's just growing out in the back. You know, yeah. m- m- mushrooms grow out of manure. You know, it's, it's very <clears throat> easy to cultivate. Um, so I get this pizza and if you know anything about psychedelic mushrooms, you know, that when you bruise the flesh, it turns blue. The, of the under, if they're fresh, you know, most people get them dried. If you get them right right out of the ground, if you bruise the flesh, it turns blue. It's very interesting. I get this pizza and it's blue, blue pizza. It's blue. Wow. Okay. It's mozzarella cheese, tomato sauce, and this blue (laughs) magic (laughs) ingredient. And I eat the pizza. And, you know, it takes – you're ingesting the fats and the cheeses and things like that. It takes a little while for that to enter your system. So I say, okay, I need to kind of get in a spot where this is – when this starts to kind of take hold uh, where I'm in a, good, in a good place. So I start to wander around and it, I start to, you know, if, if, the, if, it's a, if it's an elevator to the 100th floor, when I start to feel the elevator rise – I go, you know, you know that it's going to rise very quickly, and right. <laughs> you know, so I know, I knew I just, I want to be away from people in general and just kind of communing with the stars and whatever. <laughs> so, so I, you're looking for a mountaintop or something? I'm looking for something, and I end up wandering across a, you know, out of the village, across a bridge into a neighboring village, and down this muddy dirt road, and just wandering, you know, just totally kind of oblivious as to where I was going and where, how far I had gone. 
and it's late. It's, it's working, you know, probably on midnight. <clears throat> the stars are shining. Um, long story short, I find myself standing in a stream, ankle deep, looking up at the stars, singing Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds. <laughs> it probably tears streaming down right. my face of happiness. And I'm standing there, and I'm just like, yes, everything is just wonderful. And I think maybe I even threw some Tenacious D in there. <laughs> and I hear something to the effect of, oi. And I turn around, and there are two guys standing there, and they both have what I now know as AK-47s on me. Wow. Not like, I say pointed at me. I don't... Because there's a difference between somebody who looks like they're about to shoot you and somebody who just has their weapon. So I, don't, I didn't feel like they were going to shoot me right then and there, but the weapons were up and they were at me. And these guys were wearing matching yellow polo shirts. I'll never forget that. And uh, I think maybe they were just kind of the local village kind of guard, militia. I don't right. know. You know it's, that's the golden triangle up there. I could have been very near to a big operation, a big opiate. I have no idea. I'd wandered into a neighboring village very haphazardly in the middle of the night. And so these two guns were on me, and I want to say they're a good 12 feet behind me. And I'm, I'm ankle deep in the ocean. I stop singing, or in the stream. I stop singing. And I walk, and I give the universal gesture for I've been drinking a lot, mm-hmm. which I hadn't. Because I knew that, you know, they, they, they're going to figure out something is up with this, with this guy, you know. Looked like, a, looked like a maniac. And so I go, oh, my God, guys, I am so drunk. And I could do the t- I'm tipping the bottle with my fingers here. And I walk right in between them, in between their guns. Like, I felt like I was just Moses parting the Red Sea. <laughs> and I walked in between them. And the look on their eyes was kind of bewilderment. T- didn't know what to do. They, they, they didn't seem like they were aggressive people at all. I kind of, I feel like I had kind of crashed whatever party they were having. Right. And I started to just walk. I just said, I just felt like if I stopped and talked to these people for any reason, things wouldn't go well that I would be taken somewhere, that something would happen. I just didn't know what. And so I just said, just keep walking. So I, I kind of parted their machine guns, walked past them and said, all right, I'll see you later. I'm going to head back to my hut. <laughs> I was running a hut. And they followed me all the way back to the bridge. They were 30 feet behind me. The machine guns never went down. So my spidey senses tell me that I was near some sort of operation that, right, right, that right. was around. And so, you know, these these magic mushrooms last a long time the, <laughs> the better part of a work day yeah and this was i wasn't even halfway through my journey so i make my way back to my hut and there was a little just really just a hut with a mosquito net in it and there's a hammock on my little front porch and um i just i had about four hours to kind of process what had happened get myself calmed down and i lay down on my hammock and i look at the wall and the, the hut and it's a bare bulb kind of illuminating very harsh light and there was a gecko a cicada and a praying mantis and i'm like oh my god you guys let me tell you a story <laughs> and this same gecko cicada and praying mantis stayed with me and this is again under the influence of mushrooms they stayed with me the entire night these these creatures didn't move which which was it's just kind of bizarre they stayed with me the whole night. These creatures didn't move. I talked to them for hours, and the next day, everything was fine. <laughs> and that's my that's that's my big scary story from Laos. Which I really thought you were going to say you wake up and the, the gecko, <laughs> and then it's really just a painting of of all those things you were talking to. <laughs> I it wake stood up, still the entire night. <laughs> I wake up. I'm actually in my bed at home. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh boy, boy, that could have ended really badly. Y- yeah, you know, and you know, I, I I tell these stories not to seem braggadocious or or this is just what <laughs> happened, and right. I wouldn't recommend you know, but. When you're out there in the world and you've and you know you're doing it and you're you're backpacking in, in a very rough and tumble manner, I'm very open to situations and I'm very open to getting lost and to walking down a trail I've never been down into, you know, ingesting you know you know hallucinogens every once in a while. Um, so these things just kind of happen to people like me. So the next trip is this ayahuasca thing. You know I, that's not. Um, on the calendar, but that is something I'm trying to get down there for in the next five to six months. Um, really just feel called to it. I have a couple of very close friends that have 
that have been down there and have done that. And it's, you know, you want to make sure there's, you're with a, with a good operation, you know, the, the place I want to go, it's not cheap. You know, you spend a couple thousand dollars to be there for several weeks and you get off fresh organic food. You stay in a really nice, uh, facility and you have several ayahuasca, maybe four to six sessions with shamans. And, wow. uh, your wife's on board with this. Yeah. Yeah. Is she going or is she... uh, yeah, we'd like her to go. Yeah, she's definitely on board. She's not she doesn't drink, she doesn't smoke, she's not any of that stuff. But we we have a different I'm having a different understanding. You know, when I was doing the magic mushrooms in Lao, it was more of kind of on the party not party. Hallucinogen is not really a party thing. It's a very it's kind of a personal because it can be kind of scary. Right. Uh, you don't just go to a party and, and do that. It's not like ecstasy or something like that. <laughs> yeah. Um, which I've never done, but um <clears throat> My idea, my conception of my relationship with these things now is very different. I see it as something as a as a tool for kind of personal development and self knowledge, and kind of coming availing myself of the tools that have been used for thousands of years. Because I feel like I live in a culture and in a place that ha- doesn't have any. We push a lot of prescription. You know, there are more prescription deaths, you know, than there are deaths for any kind of illegal drug uh, in America. So we live in a culture that's almost like a backwards land where, where, where the sacred um, tools for consciousness development, personal exploration are Schedule 1 illegal, but OxyContin and the things that are really kind of, you know, I have several friends that are in prison or are close to that I can't talk to anymore because they're, they're drug addicts from pills. Yeah. These things that are legal and that are just uh, profuse in our society. So I feel like we live in this backwards world. So for me... I'm coming into a better understanding of ayahuasca and mushrooms and these, what I would consider sacred plant teachers and knowing that I need to go and kind of do this in the set and setting and with experts as it were with, with shamans and kind of avail myself of these techniques and of this knowledge and hopefully help cure myself of my own anxieties, my own inner demons, my own, you know, just try to be a better Josh. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, that was my other question. I mean, you're, you seem to be seeking out a lot of this stuff. Yeah. I mean, is there something that you're looking for? There's something in you that you're trying to, I don't know, I want to say correct, but you know, what is your journey looking for this stuff? Well, it, I feel like this is a very, I'm kind of a nature boy. Like I said, I grew up on a dirt road in a creek. Uh, you know, with you're so Pacific uh, Northwest, Pacific Northwest, and and that I, I I really identify with that, and I feel like it's a this is a very difficult time to be alive as a human, um, or it really is probably as any species because of humans, and there and it's not a fact that we really have to face on a moment to moment, day to day basis, but the reality is this is a really tough time to be. We're living longer. We have great technology, but mentally you know in our in our sight in our psyche in our in our mental life i feel like we are you know it's sicker than we've ever been depression can you know anxiety um we live in a in a, a country that basically has sustained warfare in some capacity which i think takes a psychic toll on all of us whether we know it or not um and i just feel it's harder and harder to be a human and that I really identify as a child, kind of not to just just dip in too deeply into hippie parlance, <laughs> but a child of the earth. That I'm here as a as a member of of planet Earth, just like every other species. And that many things are so out of harmony and in discord. And that is most. And I can only speak to my own personal mental life. We're all these kind of these islands in and of themselves that try to communicate with each other with our, with our, you know, vibrating sound waves. And, but you know, really we're, we're alone in this thing. So for me, it's trying to come to grips with how to be a sane, safe earthling that is availing themselves of these ancient technologies and um, wisdom that I feel like is really lost it's i feel like people think of it oh as primitive or primitive cultures primitive societies but if their mental health if their mental life is in more in harmony then i feel like we're the primitive ones because i overall i feel like our society our mental health is very is very poor well getting it back to travel i mean how was mm. travel affected that um part of your journey and mm. <clears throat> do you think it would have you'd be on that path if you hadn't no. really traveled no never no, travel changed almost 
changed my personality entirely. When I left, I was, uh, and not to say that, that, that being extremely conservative is a, is a bad thing, but I was a very hyper conservative person to the point of being very judgmental. Um, the type of person that had been at, you know, protesting abortion clinics who thought, who thought, uh, homosexuals weren't just sinful, but were lower than myself. I held opinions that are difficult to voice now. You were, you were that guy? Mm -hmm. Boy, I find that really hard to believe now. I, you know, and it wasn't, it, it was, I think, you know, at that age, you know, when you're 16, 17, 18, 19, you're really looking for something to identify with. And the things that I found were, Things like you know shock jock conservative talk radio types, yeah. <laughs> and I found that for some reason my young mind found that kind of I- ideals, if you could call it that, um, empowering for some reason. It, it kind of created an us versus them thing that I could get that I could get behind. And I came from a town of eight thousand people, and there wasn't I didn't have a whole lot of cultural experience with the things that I seemed to be rallying against for no right. apparent reason. And, uh, you not know, a lot of diversity where no, you were at. Not, not a ton. <laughs> you know, more and more now, but not, not, a, not a ton in this you know, particular small kind of a branch of the Pacific Northwest. I, 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 love, I love where I'm from, but it just didn't have the world culture diversity. So when I traveled, it was literally a school. It was like the world was teaching me, breaking me down. The first traveling partners I had were these two lesbians from Germany. It was my first night. I was in Lago de Como. I flew into Milan. I, I had knew I had three months in Italy. No plans. No idea. <laughs> nothing. So I said, okay, I'll go north. It's the closest place. No idea. <laughs> Get to the hostel. Hostel. It's like classic scene in the cafeteria. First night abroad. Scared. Lonely. What the fuck am I doing? <laughs> and these two women come up and befriend me. And they... And they're these traveling lesbians, and they had weren't having an easy time of that fact either. And so, boom, I'm instantly hit with this synchronicity that I was giving my conception of the world and people was being challenged instantly in a very positive way. And I felt that step by step, I was being challenged. Anything that I, any limiting belief I had, or any divisive belief I had, was eradicated through world travel and through the synchronicities that happen when you open yourself up to what that means. And I, <clears throat> I don't think you can do it on a, on like a regular kind of weekend warrior vacation. I think you really need to spend time. You have to almost kind of surrender to the journey. So I feel like sometimes you need months ahead of you. It doesn't have to happen after months, but sometimes knowing that you're not, I'm not going home in a week. This isn't my two week vacation. I'm here. I don't know what's going to happen <laughs> and really opening yourself up and, and starting the universe kind of starts to percolate and these things happen. And so I just got thrown these things, these curveballs. And when I got home, not only was I 30 pounds lighter, skinny as a rail, but I was, I was a total like pinko. I was, <laughs> I was every, you know, people, it was like a different person. It was like a totally different. It was this almost like this rebirth, this Phoenix baptism into world culture. I saw that, you know, my tiny small town is exactly that. It's a pinpoint on a pinpoint. And my ideas about who people are and what they should be doing with their lives, I have no idea. And also opened me being around the richness of the history of Italy. I'd never seen anything like it. So kind of it just casts your mind in these imaginative, far-fetched directions of the world is so much older and bigger and more interesting than your little tiny ideas had informed you of. And I just... That was it. Was the biggest blessing in my life was 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 going to have those experiences. Well, where can people find your stuff? And if they, they, you have a YouTube channel, you said? sure. Yeah, I'm all, everywhere on the interwebs. I'm Joshy Washington, J O S H Y Washington, one word. So <laughs> at Joshy Washington, Josh Washington, this, that, and the other thing. Uh, YouTube, Joshy Washington. I do lots of drone GoPro uh, footage these days, but I just like to I create content that I like. Um, Let's see, my, my blog, which I'm, is kind of perpetually under construction, I'm really trying to get back. Since I do lots of kind of client gigs and been publishing content on Matador and other websites for so long, I haven't put the amount of focus I probably should on my personal uh, platforms and, and real <laughs> estate. So it's something I really kind of, that's something I'm trying to correct. So my website's travelmedianinja.com. You can see some of my stuff there, but... um. Yeah, that's that's it. And I have a, a matadornetwork.com slash author slash Joshua Washington. I have about 520 some 
articles there. You can oh great if you want to spend your life reading my boy, <laughs> my stuff. <laughs> well, we'll put links uh, to yeah, everything cool. on the website, and people yeah. uh, will find you on Twitter or Twitter, Joshy Washington, Instagram, Joshy Washington. Okay, great. Yeah. Well, thanks for coming out, hey, man. Hey, it was my pleasure. Was Good fun. talking to you. No, yeah. and uh, you're on your way to Coachella. Going to Coachella tomorrow morning. I'm gonna be. Uh, I'm gonna be on my best behavior and uh, be shooting lots of GoPro footage. Okay, and who was that for? So people can. Uh, I'm doing the gig for Juicy Camper Vans. Juicy Camper Vans. Yeah, they're a, they're a outfit a camper van outfit perfect for festivals, camping. It transforms as a kitchen and sleeps like a million people, and uh, it's perfect for festivals. So we're gonna go experience that. Awesome. Yeah. Well, don't uh, save the mushrooms. Yeah, my, you don't do what? the mushrooms until after you're yeah, done shooting. I've, yeah, we're, we're, I've learned my lesson there. I'm going to wait till Peru. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> Thanks, Josh. My pleasure. Cool.